What makes you tick? What motivates you? Just all sorts of things that can make you tick. Competition, good grades, friends, uh, robust social life, politics, social uh, justice, and the things that come with that. Perhaps it's uh, a deep-held belief in a particular way of living. Maybe it's creation. Maybe creation makes you tick. Or like the guy on the way here this morning, perhaps it's being in front of me the whole way, going 10 under the speed limit. Maybe that's what makes you tick. What makes you tick? I love the, the thought of that. We've got an analog clock back there. We don't have many of those around these days. Actually, they're in each one of these rooms. There's three in this very space. But it's the mechanism behind a clock that makes those hands tick. You know, seconds and minutes and hours. There's cogs and springs, little screws and metal bits that move this mechanism that ticks the clock. What makes you tick? So this morning in our sermon series, we continue to look at Philippians uh, Paul writing a letter back to the believers of Jesus in Philippi. He is exposing to them in this little section what makes him tick. And of course, it's not just here in the, our section of scripture today that we see where Paul ticks, but throughout all of his letters. Of course, we see it in ours at the very end, verse 18. Jim's already, uh, you know, it's not like we're spoiling the end of a movie or anything. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Other places where Paul reveals some of this, Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's ticked. He, he is moving because of this gospel that he wants to proclaim to people. And 1 Corinthians 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So it's not his own rhetoric. It's not his own skills that, that are moving him forward. But listen to what it is. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel. It's this deep-held conviction that Jesus is king, that he has come to rule, and that by doing that, he's forgiven us of our sins. Paul, chief sinner, as he says in other places, he has been forgiven by this gospel. That's what makes Paul tick. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Paul had competing beliefs. He, he was not always a believer in Jesus. He didn't always follow Christ. And there were Judaism and its various sects and various beliefs. There was paganism. There was all these different competing things that wanted to be the mechanism of his life. But Paul was so moved on the Damascus Road by Christ and who he was, what he was calling him to do, how Christ presented himself, that that is the mechanism that makes Paul tick. Likewise, you and I, friends, we have so many competing ideologies and beliefs for our mechanism. There are so many things in this world that want to be the center of what makes us 
course, there's many more of them because we're so connected via the internet these days. We can know about things across the world. We can see people living in different ways. But it's so similar to the way that Paul and other Christ followers would have lived. But here we see this morning the gospel is so attractive to Paul and to those around him. It's the mechanism that makes them tick. See, Jesus is the only true source of joy. And so we cling to the hope of the gospel like Paul. And so I want us to just look at this passage from that lens today. When Paul says that he can rejoice in the preaching of Christ, no matter what. And he has a lot of what's that go on in this passage, and we'll break through those. He clings to the hope of the gospel. And that's what gets him through. That's what makes him tick. We'll see that he is clinging amidst his situation, his relationships, and as his strength. And so likewise, we cling amidst, amidst our situation through our relationships and as our strength. Those are our three main points as we move forward this morning. Okay, so cling amidst our situation. The first main point, verses 12 and 16, Paul makes reference to what's happening to him. He says, I want you to know, brothers, writing to the Philippians, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then later, in verse 16, he sort of makes another mention of it. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here. So he's making a reference to where he is physically for the defense of the gospel. You know, Paul is being rather coy about what has happened to him. And there's other places that he mentions this, and we're going to read that. But I don't want us to fixate on the, the specificity of all of the things that have happened to Paul. Because he doesn't do that here. I think it's helpful for us in this context to know. Some of us might not know what has happened to Paul up until this point. But it's not the main point of why he says this. It's probably because those in Philippi may have known some of these things already. That's why he's not lifting it up. But I think he doesn't share a long list of things that have happened to him because he doesn't want his readers to, again, be fixated on his sufferings. He wants them to be fixated on the outcome of them, which is the kingdom moving forward in the gospel. So again, let's not fixate on these. But we do see in 2 Corinthians where Paul is outlining these things. 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to start in verse 24. You're welcome to join me in reading there if you have a Bible through an app or something. This is what Paul says in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Sounds like a pretty rough week. And of course, this letter, 2 Corinthians, was written even a few years before 
Perhaps Philippians was written, so there's even a few more things as Paul's on his way to Rome, which is where I think most scholarship, some scholarship think Paul is at when he writes Philippians. So he still has another shipwreck, and he's still standing before people. He's still in jail. A lot has happened to Paul. His situation, his individual personal situation, there's lots of toil. Yet, as he ends in verse 18, he is still rejoicing. He is still rejoicing. Here's a quote that I found, I think gives us a good idea of what it might, what this looks like. This means that joy is not a result of pleasant circumstances. Paul certainly didn't have pleasant circumstances all the time. Or prosperity or success. Joy for Paul was not an emotion or a mood or a feeling, but an attitude. It was an attitude, this joy that he had in the gospel. See, happiness is based on circumstances and outcomes, but joy is not. We have the gramification of life. Some of you might know what that means. Some of you might not. Instagram and Facebook, these places where we can endlessly scroll and see how happy people are. Everything on Instagram is beautiful. I don't know if I've ever seen anything that wasn't beautiful on Instagram. Great places to visit, a wonderful meal that you're eating, all sorts of things. It leads us to believe that everybody is happy. Of course, people might be happy, but the real question I want to know is do people find joy in this world? Are people grounded because not everything, of course, looks beautiful all the time. I don't even have to begin to name what those things might be for you. You know exactly what that was like, maybe even from this morning. But can you find a deep-seated joy like Paul in Christ? Because what Christ has done, you rest in who Christ is for you amidst those situations and circumstances. And so we see how the hope of the gospel impacts our individual circumstances in our lives, but also around us in our community. If you just look at Paul in this situation, it was changed by him being put in jail. Uh, you know, it changes the situation for those around him. You think about Epaphroditus as a great example of a follower of Jesus here, even in Philippians, whose joy through circumstances because of his community is not, um, he's holding on to the gospel. And later on in Philippians, uh, we'll touch a bit here and there on Epaphroditus, but not in, in whole. And so we'll include him here as a part of the community of Christ. Uh, Philippians 2, I'm going to start in verse 25. I'm going to read through some of this just to give us an idea of Epaphroditus in this community and, and sort of his clinging to the hope of the gospel. I mean, he nearly died bringing the letter to, to Paul. So starting verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier in your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. I think that that's a really interesting point. Epaphroditus is distressed that the Philippians have heard that he was ill. 
He cares what they think. He is in distress because his community is worried about him. So he is longing to get back to them because he cares for them and knows that they are distressed. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You know, Epaphroditus is an example of somebody in the community clinging to the hope of the gospel amidst life circumstances where he almost died. And he's bringing this hope to Paul. He's bringing a gift to him. And Paul's writing this letter and sending it back to Philippi as he's in prison to encourage the community. Because Paul was kind of plucked out of this community. And you can think about it like, uh, you know, a star player on a team being plucked off of the team. It's going to change the dynamics of how that team plays. So removing Paul from the situation was the Roman Imperial Guard's idea of trying to change the dynamics in these Christ communities as they're growing and flourishing. But of course we know through this letter and other letters that it just didn't happen. The kingdom continued to move forward without Paul in the community. Of course, Paul's still here. He hasn't died. He's writing a letter from Philippians. But nonetheless, in the community, they are clinging to the hope of the gospel. They're not clinging to the hope of Paul being the one preaching it. They're not clinging to this one person being the one to be the one planting churches. Instead, they're clinging to Jesus. The third situation is a temporal situation or through uh, time, not necessarily antithesis to spiritual things in the temporal means. So we see that God is working through his appointed time. We have a, a devotion coming out this week. We sent out a devotion on the, the passages each week following the sermon and there'll be one on God's providence. I would lift that to you to think about if you're thinking about this idea of God's providence as something that you wrestle with. It's not going to be a theological treatise, but hopefully it will devotionally help you think about that concept with some help from some of our catechisms. But anyways, God is working through time here with Paul. He has put him here for a specific reason. And Paul in Romans 8 affirms this belief that God is working through his people in space and time to conform them to the image of Jesus. See, this is the sort of perspective that Paul has as he sits in jail. God is working through him in that specific time. See, God's the one who works through us in time, making us more like Jesus. He puts us in the places that we find ourselves for particular reasons. The sufferings that we may or may not have. The jobs that we work or the ones that we may have lost. The relationships that we are in. The churches that we find ourselves. The communities that we serve in and live in. God has placed us in these uh, particular places and situations because he is working through us in real time to make us more like Jesus. Of course, some of that is persecution. 
You know, Jesus in John 15 lays this out, 18 through 21, talking about how if the world has hated him, it's going to hate his followers too. If the world is going to throw him under the bus, it's going to throw his followers under the bus just as much. And so we can expect that. But that's not necessarily our context here in America. There are things that have changed, and, and of course there are things that have made it harder to be a Christian in the workplace because there's so many competing ideologies, like we said earlier, and some of these businesses are predicated on those ideologies. So of course it's harder to, to be a Christian, to live out your values in the workplace than it might have been you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We're not being persecuted in the sense of if you read about missionaries and Christians in places like the Middle East and Afghanistan, which has been front and center for us. That's a different level of persecution. But nonetheless, God is working through their situations where he has placed them in real time and space. Our situations where he has placed us in real time and space to make us more like Jesus. That's why we cling to the hope of the gospel in those situations. The truth remains that God is working through us. So we cling also through our relationships. This one I think is really fascinating in this part of the text because Paul, sort of as he's explaining where he is and what's going on, he highlights three different groups of people. And so I want to look at each one of those groups of people and learn how is Paul clinging to the hope of the gospel as he is engaging with these three different groups. So the, the first are the allies and partners. In fact, all of them are kind of allies and partners. Uh, the first is a group that Paul is influencing while he is in jail. I love the joke that Paul was one of the first influencers uh, he didn't have an Instagram or Facebook account or YouTube, but man, he was really influencing people while he was sitting in jail. So Paul finds himself uh, in the Roman uh, Imperial Guard or the Roman uh, Praetorium, as some of your uh, translations may say. I mean, this is a place where there's Roman governors and military workers, there's government employees. I mean, this is a place where, I mean, it's locked down. These are the people that are not coming to see Paul teach and preach in synagogues or on the street. These are people that are not going out of their way to listen to him. And so God brought him to jail. So they had no other way to get away from him. They had to work their shifts while Paul was praying for his community out loud. While he was receiving people like Epaphroditus, while he was sharing the good news of Jesus with one guard, he would then go uh, change shifts and go talk about it with all his other friends, and then they would come back. They were hearing from Paul without going anywhere. And I do think there's an application for us to think about in our day. What are, what are the spheres of influence that God has placed you in? Neighbors? that are right around you, co-workers, people that you are sending Slack messages or emails to all day long, perhaps having to jump on a Zoom call, and they live thousands of miles away. That's a sphere of influence. People that you're joining side by side to complete a goal. Your family members, those that are immediately with you. Who are the people that God has placed in and around your life that you have some influence on. 
And how can we think about what it means to live, say, and be Christ followers to those people? Praying for them. Asking them if they are interested in reading scripture together. Showing integrity as we work beside them. Being honest when we make a mistake at work. Owning up to that, even if it means some form of a consequence. Putting ourselves out there. So Paul is doing that to these Romans. That's the first group in jail. Paul is experiencing the Romans. The second group of people that we see are those that are Jesus followers. And I'll call these the emboldened. So this is that part in the end of that first paragraph, uh, starting in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So these are uh, brothers and sisters, that Greek word adelphoi, which uh, really gets at this familial sense. This is how one commentator sort of teases that out. He does, he uses this word because he sees himself with them as belonging to the same family, closely and lovingly related to each other, not by birth, but by faith in Jesus Christ and by commitment to doing the will of God. And that last part makes reference to Mark 3 when Jesus is there and they come and say, hey, you're, you know, your family's at the door. And he said, who are my mother and brother and sister? It's those who do the will of God. The folks that are here with me. The ones living this out. The ones who believe in who I am. Believe that Jesus is king. And are do, committed to doing the will of God. And that's who we see here. They're emboldened by the fact that Paul is in jail. That something is happening. The gospel is going forward. The kingdom is being proclaimed. And so they continue to proclaim the gospel. Even while Paul sits in jail. They're emboldened. They have confidence to do this. That confidence comes to that clinging in the hope of Christ. Again, not in Paul, not in some other leader in their community, but in Jesus himself. And the third group, which is the group that we're all most interested in, is the rival preachers. They're the final group that we see Paul addressing in this text. And this is a really interesting group. I'm going to read a couple of verses and point out some grammatical things, probably not as much as Andrew did in our past week, but this will key us in to help us see how Paul is thinking about these people as he addresses them. So let's start again in verse, we'll just start in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard, group one, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And for the brothers, group two, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, most of your translations probably have a period and a space and a new paragraph, meaning it's indicating to you, as we've been trained in education, this is a new thought. It's moving on. But notice that Paul doesn't recategorize this group of people. He continues his thought from verse 14. He says that most of the brothers, in verse 14... Now jump to verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Paul calls them brothers. He looks at them as family, just as he does the ones that are preaching with more confidence and more boldness. Is that challenging? 
to hear. It challenges me. It's something I've been trying to sit with here for the last 10 days. How do we talk about this? Because these folks are preaching Christ from rivalry, envy, not from goodwill like some of them are. Because the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former, those doing it out of rivalry and envy, they're not sincerely doing it, but thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. I mean, this is tough. Because Paul doesn't let them get by with what they're doing. In one sense, he calls them out and says, look, they're not teaching with pure motivations. They're preaching the gospel, yes, but they're doing it to afflict me. He doesn't call them out like he does in Galatians. This isn't a false gospel teaching. They are preaching the gospel, but they're also not the, the brothers who have been emboldened with confidence to preach Christ purely. So Paul views these preachers as equal to himself despite their unpure motivations. They're still a part of the family. They're still brothers and sisters. So what do we do with this? I mean, that's a question people have been asking and certainly a question you're asking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list five things. So get your notes ready if you're a note taker. I'm going to list five things that we can do with this that we pull out from Paul as he approaches this. The first is that we don't hold grudges. Paul is not holding a grudge. He mentions them here. He mentions that they're preaching the gospel. And then he moves on. He doesn't hold it against them. Yes, he calls it out and says they're doing it from ill motives. But he doesn't take a dig at them. He doesn't try to throw them under the bus. He names it. You see, when you hold a grudge, we think we have the power. But in fact, that person has the power over us. And Paul's saying, no one has power over me except Christ. That's the first one. We don't hold grudges. The second that there's no retaliation. Paul doesn't go back at them. You don't see him writing a letter talking ill of these folks. Again, instead, he names what they're doing. He rejoices that they're preaching the gospel. And he continues to write to the Philippians. The third thing is that Paul and you and I, through Paul's example, we have to entrust ourselves to the one who judges rightly. It is not for you and I to be the judge of people's motives, but to trust that God will be the one who does this. And Paul recognizes this. That's why he doesn't judge their motives. He names them again. He names them. I'm going to say this over and over again. He names it, right? So he's not backing away from it. He's not sweeping under the rug. But he does not judge them. One preacher put it this way. We have to move to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly and wish them well. We wish them well because they're preaching the gospel. So the fourth thing is we notice that Paul keeps his distance. He's not saying that these are like my close allies. These are not the ones that were emboldened with confidence to preach the gospel. These ones are doing it out of rivalry. And out of discontent, they're, they're aiming at me. I'm going to keep my distance. But he doesn't cancel them. He doesn't throw them under the bus. He doesn't call them false gospel preachers, again, like he does in Galatians. He holds his distance. And the fifth that we learn from Paul is we remember that this is all about Christ. It's not about denominations. 
It's not about particular doctrines. It's not about how big our church or how small our church or what we do for our liturgy or our worship or our music or how we say things. It's about the grace of Christ. We lead with grace. Paul leads with the gospel here instead of precision. Instead of saying, yeah, you know, their motives are a little bit off because their doctrine's probably a little bit off. And he doesn't go there. He says, they're preaching the gospel, and in that I rejoice. And this is challenging for me. This is so challenging for me as someone who thinks about doctrine and theology and in words and how words matter and how people preach things and teach things. I want to be precise and I want others to be precise. I want others to, to, to teach and lead in ways that perhaps I do. But you see, that's where the struggle is. It's not about me. It's not about what I'm saying. Unless I'm saying something that's not gospel-focused, then it becomes about me, and you all need to hold me to that. Because that's what Paul's calling out in Galatians. See, it's about Christ. Of course, this makes us all reflect. Scripture's like a mirror. We hold it up, we read it through prayer, through community groups, through other people, through sermon response classes, through talking to our kids who help us see things so clearly sometimes. It's a mirror that reflects back to us. What are our motivations? It's easy to pick out other people's motivations, but what are our motivations? Paul is such an example to us of this. And the last thing that we do is we cling to the hope of the gospel as our strength. We're moved to rely on the gospel. We're moved, like Paul, to trust that God is working through even ill-motivated teachers and preachers that the gospel would go forward. See, we're big, we are people shaped by big character and a big God. I love in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a section that Paul, he's in verse 8, says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, this is the Lord, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, Insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul is helping us see in his situation through his relationships that his strength is in the gospel of Christ. It's all about Christ. It's, that's the mechanism that Paul wants our lives through a letter to the Philippians written so many years ago. He wants us he really wants them, and God wants us through them, to see that the mechanism that we rely on is the gospel. It's not ourselves. We live in a highly individualistic culture that says you can do it. You can pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can figure it out. It's not through these other ideologies and beliefs, whether that's political or a different religious belief, whether that's uh, social, all the things we named earlier. 
No, instead, it's through clinging to the hope of the gospel. That is the only way to live and to partner in this story of joy. It's an invitation to trust no matter the situation, no matter what your relationships are like, no matter what you think your strengths may be. It's an invitation to trust in Christ. And that's where we'll find joy. And that's where we'll find gospel, community, motives and reasons for doing things, for living. We trust in Christ, as Paul did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text and the way that you use it to, to navigate the, the heart. You use it to expose in us some of our sins, some of our um, reliance on anything but you. Build our own cisterns and trust in them, forsake who you are. And move us to trust in the way that you are moving and working to trust in this gospel story that we hear. Jesus, our King, the one who's at the center of all this. He is ruling. He's forgiving. He's loving. He's uh, correcting. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, the heart to believe and trust in Jesus our King. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.